IPOs are usually speculative and always risky. The companies are often losing money with no clear path to profits, and their businesses, by definition, haven't shown long-term success. So what happens when you add an even bigger risk, like the geopolitical kind? For foreign companies going public in the U.S., it's a delicate balancing act, especially when you're trying to pull off the biggest IPO of all time. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback from Barron's. This season, we're winding back the clock and unraveling the stories of the companies behind the biggest and most fascinating IPOs to answer a key question. How do we put a price on innovation? Today on the show, how Alibaba became the world's largest and its most complicated IPO. There are big IPOs, and then there's Alibaba, which is a category unto itself. It's almost hard to describe how large Alibaba was by 2014 when it decided to list its stock on the New York Stock Exchange. The company had just come off a year in which its online buying platform enabled $248 billion worth of sales across 231 million active buyers. This would be like Amazon going public today. Alibaba, in fact, was already the Amazon of China, and the PayPal, and the eBay, and Etsy, all rolled into one. In China, the company was part of the world's fastest-growing economy and its 1 billion-plus population. Even in China, though, it was still the early days of internet shopping. At the time of Alibaba's IPO, less than 10% of China's total consumer spending was happening online. So the upside was huge. Despite all the impressive numbers, Alibaba was missing one thing. Access to the world's most liquid market. So, the company made the bold decision to list its stock in the United States. And wow, did it pay off. Alibaba raised $22 billion in its IPO, the largest sum ever by a wide margin at the time. After the IPO, Alibaba's market value was a staggering $168 billion, making it instantly larger than Amazon. It was one of the first companies where people started to realize that China was more than just a copycat economy, more than a copycat nation, that it actually had some champions that were doing novel things that could compete with anybody globally. That's Leland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book, a China research firm that caters to U.S. investors. U.S. investors were eager to find ways to benefit from China's booming economy. In 2014, its GDP was growing 7.4% versus 2.5% in the U.S. Alibaba was an obvious way to play the trend and technology's growing role in it all. It's important to remember that Alibaba was also going public at a time when the U.S.-China relationship wasn't as tense as it is today. There were risks investing in a Chinese company, which we'll get into more later in the episode. But at the time, Alibaba was eager to be here, and U.S. investors quickly got on board. There's very good reason to go public here, which is this is the largest capital market in the world. The capital markets here are broad and deep. U.S. investors have long wanted to have exposure to the Chinese market. That's Eric Savitz, who covers tech for Barron's from Silicon Valley. At the time of the Alibaba IPO, though, Eric had a different role. You've been a reporter for a very long time. You have a bit of a different story and a background when it comes to the Alibaba deal, right? Yeah, so I have a particular connection here. Back in 2014, Eric was working for a corporate communications firm hired by Alibaba to work on its IPO. 
While he's been back to being a reporter for a while now, Eric has generally stayed away from writing about Alibaba, just to be safe when it comes to our objectivity. But for this podcast, we wanted to have Eric share his front row seat to the world's largest IPO show. One of Eric's jobs back in 2014 was to help with drafting Alibaba's IPO filing and to prepare the company executives for questions from reporters. When you're planning a multi-billion dollar IPO, millions of dollars are spent to make sure everything goes exactly right, down to the most precise talking points. When you do make a filing for an IPO, the one thing you can't do is answer a lot of media questions. In fact, you're really not supposed to talk to media at all. And so firms like the one I worked for played a kind of go-between where we helped people find the answers to what they were looking for. This applies not just to Alibaba, but to any company that's filed to go public. Every IPO is a carefully coordinated affair. Alibaba's was particularly delicate. It was huge and it was cross-border. So before the paperwork was finalized, Alibaba called everyone into one big room. So we had a very secretive meeting that was to be held in Hong Kong. And what we were told was we would be given the location of the meeting two hours before the meeting would start. So we flew to Hong Kong. We didn't know exactly where we were going. And we were then summoned to a meeting at a yacht club. First of all, there's a <laughs> there's a signboard in this very posh yacht club in the lobby, as you might see in any place where they have formal meetings. And what it says on the signboard is, welcome to the East Asian Insurance Company annual meeting. Now, I don't know if there is an East Asian insurance company, but that certainly was not what was happening that day. There were hundreds of people involved, as Eric recalls, from bankers and lawyers to accountants and PR folks. One of my favorite moments was someone stood up at the beginning of the meeting and said, basically, we need to make sure that everyone in the room is supposed to be here. So we're going to take the role. And the way they did it was they made each individual person stand up at their place. It felt a little like kindergarten. And you have to, again, remember, these are the most powerful investment bankers in the world. And then came the point where Eric got to see the draft of Alibaba's paperwork. It opened the window to a previously unknown world. For an S1 filing for any offering, even a small IPO, is hundreds of pages, and it's filled with boilerplate and warnings and disclosure of all kinds. But the really interesting stuff tends to be, what are the numbers? And when we got a first look at the numbers, at this, the sheer size, the size of the revenues that this company was producing, I actually laughed out loud when I read the numbers because they were so big. It wasn't just the revenues were big and, you know, the number of employees were big and those kinds of things, but there were a bunch of ancillary elements of the story that were big and that were detailed in the filing. So to give you one example, Taobao Villages. Taobao is just one part of Alibaba's operation. Think of it as a supercharged Etsy with millions of individual sellers using Alibaba's platform to sell their wares. The implication was basically that there were villages in China where essentially large chunks of the workforce did nothing except make stuff to sell on Taobao. Like there's just no U.S. equivalent of that. There were something like 50,000 women who did nothing except model clothing for sellers on the platform. They had a career modeling for Taobao and for the other 
Alibaba websites. Like there's just there's just a whole bunch of stuff like that that was just unbelievable. So once you saw all that, it was clear that this was going to be a monster, monster IPO. The gigantic business became a gigantic IPO. And by 2020, at the stock's peak, Alibaba was worth about $800 billion. But things have gotten more complicated. The stock is down about 25% since that 2020 high, as investors started to worry about the risks they had spent years overlooking. After all, Alibaba was never just a straightforward business. Here's Leland Miller again. You know, what stands out to most is that nobody paid any attention to the risk factors. There was such unbelievable excitement about being able to invest that you would talk over some of the risks with clients and they just didn't care. It was just one wrinkle that made Alibaba different than your typical IPO. Just because the stock was now listed in the United States didn't mean the company wasn't subject to the scrutiny and edicts of its own government. From a legal standpoint, there was nothing that prohibited the Chinese government, if they were so inclined, from severing the link and essentially making your investment into Alibaba worthless. Now, people didn't think this would happen. Why would Beijing ever do this? And fair enough, you know, they haven't done that. But this is a real risk. I mean, if you talk about the fact that you could be making an investment that could go poof with the flip of a switch, that should be part of investors' calculus and whether they want to invest. But I can say that any of those concerns were completely swept under the rug uh, because of the general euphoria in investing in these companies. You know, looking back, it's hard to say that any of these investors made the wrong decision. They've made a lot of money from their investments. Maybe too much money. In recent years, the Chinese government, which long celebrated its internet champion, has begun to rethink Alibaba's role in its society. Welcome back. I want to share some very big news that uh, has been developing this morning out of China. Of course, as our recently, know, been... the government forced Alibaba to cancel the $34 billion IPO of Ant Financial, its payments subsidiary. All of that appears this morning to be going up in smoke. The Shanghai Exchange, and we also know Hong Kong as well, essentially suspended the listing this morning. The payments platform had become a major player in China by offering favorable rates to customers something China's traditional banks couldn't do. But now China's banks were pushing back, and the government was trying to rein the company in. Around the same time, Jack Ma, Alibaba's founder, basically disappeared, a shocking downfall for the country's best-known businessman. He is very powerful, very wealthy, and generally a very public figure. But since giving this speech that was critical of China's government, Jack Ma hasn't been seen in public. And now many are questioning, where is Jack Ma? I see the problem being Alibaba's capturing of the money market market as well as the e-payments market. And it was a combination between Jack Ma making a lot of enemies, Alibaba's funds driving outflows from state banks, to the idea that a couple of payment companies, the entire Chinese economy was running through. And this over-reliance was making a lot of people scared in Beijing that this was a potential point of systemic failure. Meanwhile, China has changed its tune about companies turning to U.S. markets to raise capital. The government has recently started encouraging its companies to go public in China. What's been happening recently, of course, is something very different. It has been the party 
whispering in companies' ears, come back home, come back home, be a patriot, come back home. For Ant Financial, though, even coming home for its IPO wasn't enough. The company had planned its listing for Shanghai and Hong Kong. It was still canceled. And now Ant Financial has given up on some of its more disruptive ideas. In April, the company agreed to be restructured like a bank holding company. At the same time, Alibaba paid a $2.8 billion antitrust fine. Alibaba's stock jumped almost 10% on that news. But the issues haven't gone away. There's also the fact that the U.S. government has its own growing qualms about allowing Chinese companies to list here. It means Alibaba and its investors are potentially stuck between a rock and a hard place. Back in 2014, the idea where, you know, you'd have U.S.-China economic warfare was seen as some sort of distant possibility. Now it's a lot more real because we're having an active debate on, you know, delisting Chinese firms from U.S. exchanges. So, you know, it's, it's a lot more real now. You know, it's, it, is it likely to happen? Would Beijing flip that switch with all the collateral damage? I don't think anyone thinks it's likely, but it's a, it's, it's a heck of a secondary risk to be looking at. The Alibaba story has gotten me thinking. Should Chinese companies really be listed on U.S. exchanges? And if they are, should U.S. investors buy them? I absolutely think they should be listed on U.S. exchanges, uh, with one caveat. Uh, Any company that lists on a U.S. exchange should follow U.S. exchange listing standards. If they're a U.S. company, they should. If they're a Chinese company, they should. If they're a Belgian company, they should. The problem we've had is that everybody pays attention to the rules and everybody adheres to the rules except a small handful of companies almost all of which are Chinese or Hong Kong companies. And so what has happened here is that when a U.S. exchange allows a company on it, it is essentially telling investors that this company is adhering to its rules, that it's providing the necessary transparency. You know, in some ways, the U.S. exchange is vouching for its numbers, for its processes, to some extent. That is not happening with Chinese companies. And the only reason the Chinese companies have been able to get away with this is that U.S. regulators do not have a spine or have not had a spine when it came to enforcing what should be very clear and obvious rules that have nothing to do with China specifically. And I think this is what has created momentum for there to be a potential delisting. I do not think Chinese companies should be delisted if they play by the rules. They should absolutely be on U.S. exchanges. But if they will not adhere to certain rules, the most important one being allowing themselves to be open to audits of their financials, then they should not be on U.S. exchanges. And I think people are coming around to that as being the right answer, finally. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadback@barons.com. Thanks to Eric Savitz and Leland Miller. For more coverage on Alibaba, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoft and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Next week on the show, WeWork is now a cautionary tale for startups, but it took a failed IPO to actually learn the lesson. 
Office-based startup WeWork has officially postponed a plan to go public. It was just clear that they hadn't actually figured out something that would justify the valuation they were getting. So it was sort of a moment when the curtain was lifted and everyone could see what was going on backstage and realized that it wasn't all that different. We'll be back next week. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.